Uh, my name is Randy Shockey. I'm the executive director of the Bighorn County Historical Museum in Hardin, Montana. And uh, as uh, <coughs> most of us know, uh, history for many people is pretty much just what they read. But for those of us in museum work, history often becomes hands-on. And uh, I've been with the museum there in Hardin for five years. Uh, the first four years actually as a restorer, the last year as a director. And uh, in my first year at the museum, uh, I was assisting one of our volunteers as we were getting ready to move a number of our vehicles that we keep in one of the barns uh, out of the barn uh, to make way for one of our uh, events. And uh, Larry, had asked me to drive a Model A, park it outside, which I did. It was beautifully restored Model A. Drove it outside, parked it, came back in the barn, and he said, move that Model T over there and park it beside or behind the Model A. So I uh, jumped into Model T, and those of you that may or may not be familiar with Model Ts, uh, they drive a little differently than a regular car. They have three pedals on the floor. And I see a few heads nodding here. <laughs> One pedal you push down to go forward, one pedal you push down to go backwards, and one pedal you push to brake. And so uh, I got in and uh, we started it up and he said, drive it around a little bit, warm it up, it hasn't been driven in a while. So I did, I drove it up and down the road a few times, got, came back around and uh, to park it. And as I swung around and came in behind the Model A, I took my foot off the forward pedal and uh, began to brake, but it wasn't stopping. And it was moving at a fair clip, so I realized quickly enough that it wasn't going to stop, so I tried to swerve real fast and uh, clipped the back of the Model A with the front of the Model T. Uh, took out the um, right front headlight and crumpled the fender on the Model T. Put a pretty fair scratch in the back of the Model A. Of course, I felt terrible, and so I went inside, I figured, oh, they're going to fire me, <laughs> you know. I went inside, told Larry, and Larry's like, eh, no big deal. He says, we've had worse things happen. He said, I should have told you, uh, that transmission on that Model T has been kind of sticky. I should have told you ahead of time. And I'm like, well, Larry, thanks now. You know? He says, I'll fix it, no problem. When we get done, he said, you'll never know, which he did fix it. And it works, it looks perfect today. But it gave me uh, something that very few people have that are still alive today, and that is, there's not very many people that can say that they've wrecked a Model T by running into a Model A. <laughs> so our, our museum is pretty hands-on. Um, our museum, uh, also there in Bighorn County, which borders Yellowstone County to the east, uh, Bighorn County is home to two forts uh, that have um, significance in Western history, Montana history, Fort C.F. Smith. Uh, which was the northernmost fort on the Bozeman Trail, and then Fort Custer, which we're going to talk about today. Fort C.F. Smith, um, there's so little, uh, you know, in terms of um, artifacts, uh, no known photographs um, of the fort in existence. There's record records about it, um, people who wrote uh, about the Bloody Bozeman. I don't know if you've ever read that book, it's pretty interesting. A lot about Fort C.F. Smith and Fort Phil Kearney. Um, but very little, you know, but for 15 years later, they built Fort Custer and we have a ton of artifacts and photographs and records connected to um, Fort Custer. So 
Um, a lot of this material that I'm going to share with you today came from a book that Ed Kimmick just mentioned a little bit ago. It's called Fort Custer on the Bighorn, 1877 to 1898, as well as uh, articles that came out of the Billings Daily Gazette. He mentioned that as well, the two newspapers that, that uh, competed back in those days, as well as numerous clippings and uh, other things that we have there at the um, museum. So most of everybody here, I'm sure, is familiar with what happened on June 25, 1876. Probably the most famous battle of the Indian Wars took place. Sioux and Cheyenne warriors, under the guidance of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, fought troops of the 7th Cavalry under command of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Here's the man. One of the most, uh, or at least one of the biggest misconceptions I've come across is that Fort Custer was built in response to Custer's defeat on the Little Bighorn. Now, Custer's defeat probably spurred the politicians in Washington, uh, just like 9-11. The Battle of Little Bighorn was like a 9-11 to our country. But plans for a fort were already in the works when Custer and his men died on that hot summer day in, in 1876. The year before, Lieutenant uh, General Philip Sheridan and Brigadier General Alfred Terry had both stressed the need for at least two military posts in this area. The recommendations were acted upon in July of 1876, one month after Custer's defeat, and money was appropriated for Fort Keogh a month after that. Fort Keogh was built at present-day Miles City, and a year later Fort Custer would be started uh, at present-day Harlem. In this picture here, this was taken when Fort Custer was in existence. Um, this is looking uh, north on the Bighorn River. So the fort, you can see, just barely make out up there the uh, buildings up here on the bluffs. Across uh, over here, uh, there would be a number of settlements, uh, cabins, uh, the Indian village, so on and so forth that was over here. They were joined by a ferry that ran across over in this area here. <coughs> The museum uh, that I work at uh, sits right about in that spot there, and all the rest of Hardin sits off over here in this direction. So um, if you step out the front doors of our museum and look at the river, you can see those bluffs, and right up on top there was where Fort Custer existed. Um, unfortunately, Fort Custer has kind of been lost in the shadow of the uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn and the battlefield itself. Every year, hundreds of thousands, I think right now their numbers run around 400,000 a year, people visit the battlegrounds there of the Little Bighorn and literally know nothing about the fact that a year after the battle, uh, a fort was built just 12 miles north of the battlefield and named after uh, Custer. Um, and that fort existed for 21 years and played a major role in development of the Bighorn River Valley, the Yellowstone River Valley, and beyond. And uh, one of the things, you know, I like digging up in, in my reading on history is I like finding obscure things, uh, things that the average person probably doesn't know, maybe even things that are even debatable. And one of the things I came across was a report written by one of um, Custer's scouts, a uh, Crow Scout, who said that Custer told the Crow Scouts on June 25th, 1876, he said, if we beat the Sioux, I will be President of the United States. 
the grandfather. How many of you knew that Custer actually was interested in running for president? It's a known fact now. He, uh, he said, he goes on, he says, if you do as I tell you and capture many ponies for me, I will take care of you when I, be, when I come into power. I will build you a fort in the heart of your land to protect you from your enemies, meaning the Sioux. And so obviously uh, he wasn't able to fulfill that promise, but the uh, army did. This gentleman right here, this is Lieutenant Gustavus Cheney Doan. Uh, he was tasked with selecting the site for the Bighorn Post that was later renamed for Custer. Doan was an accomplished explorer with the U.S. Army, having participated in three explorations of the Yellowstone area. He would go on to participate in a number of other explorations and uh, Army campaigns, namely the Nez Perce War, uh, Geronimo Campaign, and uh, the ill-fated Howgate Arctic Expedition of 1880, which is interesting read. So here in this um, slide here, uh, Lieutenant Doan, he was um, selected to select the site for uh, the post, and he chose the site that was just south of the confluence of the Little Horn and the Bighorn Rivers, which here's the Little Horn running here, and here's the Bighorn River running here. They, can, they join right up here, and so just south of that spot is where these bluffs rise, uh, a very commanding view, and that's where the fort would be built, and you can see the outline there of the fort. And then across over here was some of the camps, and then over here is present-day Hardin, Montana. White Crow uh, scout, Thomas LaForge, who's the man on the left, uh, he acted as a guide to Lieutenant Doan. Uh, LaForge is pictured here with author Dr. Thomas Bailey Marquis, or Marquez, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce that. Now, Marquis wrote a number of books about the Cheyenne and the Crow Indians while living among them. And he wrote a very controversial book, and it was the final book that he wrote as well. It was called Keep the Last Bullet for Yourself. Has anybody ever seen or read that one? In that book, uh, he claims, based on reports of the Cheyenne warriors who fought in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which he personally interviewed, he claims that many of Custer's men committed suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Sioux and of the Cheyenne warriors. Uh, that was highly controversial, and it was a, it was a scandal, basically, at the point when he, uh, matter of fact, the book that he wrote claiming that was not published until almost 50 years after his death. In his later years, Thomas LaFord settled in Lodgegrass, Montana, south of Hardin, on the Crow Reservation, and he built a cabin there for his family. Uh, in 1980, that cabin was picked up and moved uh, to our museum in Hardin and restored. Uh, 38 uh, years later, it is being restored again, uh, being partially funded by the Montana History Foundation. So if you, uh, Montana History Foundation people are in here, thank you very much for that. Now, Captain Erasmus Gilbreth, who commanded Company H of the 11th Infantry at Fort Custer from 1877, its beginning, to 1882, uh, he was um, charged with also moving and overseeing the moving of materials from uh, 
Terry's Landing, which was the uh, confluence of the Bighorn River and the Yellowstone. They set up this post down there. He named it after General Terry. And they were moving materials from the Yellowstone up the Bighorn to construct Fort Custer. He estimated that in the five months of his work at Terry's Landing, his company cared for and shipped out approximately six million pounds of freight to Fort Custer. Now pictured on the left here is the Far West, probably one of the most famous steam river boats. Um, this boat, along with other uh, ships and uh, various ones, the Rosebud, the Bachelor, uh, various others, there was dozens of them that plied the rivers then. They carried tr uh, freight, troops, travelers, uh, up and down the Bighorn, the Yellowstone, and the Missouri Rivers. Uh, famed riverboat captain Grant Marsh, uh, pilot of the Far West, uh, in a navigational feat uh, that was never equaled on western waters when he brought over 50 wounded survivors of Major Reno's command at the Little Bighorn. He carried them 700 miles down the Yellowstone, down the Missouri River, to Fort Abraham Lincoln in just 54 hours. He arrived at Fort Abraham Lincoln on July 5th, 1876, as they are celebrating the centennial of our country, he arrives with the bad news of Custer's defeat there on the battleground of the Little Bighorn. Now, Captain Gilbreth uh, visited the Custer battlefield one and a half years after the battle in January of 1878, and he reported, uh, and I quote, the trail of the Indians to the great camp where Custer found them was still very plain. He went on to say, the hill on which Custer and his command lost their lives was still covered with the bones of horses and men. Now, this here is the first crude monument to Custer and his troops. Um, and uh, this was assembled by Captain George Sanderson and the 11th Infantry. They uh, were the second burial team to arrive at the battlefield, and uh, they began to remove animal and human bones. Uh, in his official report, dated April 7, 1879, um, Captain Sanderson wrote the following. I accordingly built a mound out of cordwood filled in the center with all the horse bones that I could find on the field. In the center of the mound, I dug a grave and interred all the human bones that could be found in all parts of four or five different bodies. This grave was then built up with wood for four or five feet above ground. The mound is 10 feet square, about 11 feet high, and is built on the highest point immediately in rear of where General Custer's body was found. If you uh, visit the battlefield, the monument that is there right now is built on that exact spot. So let's take a look at the fort itself. Uh, this picture here, this is uh, the enlisted men's quarters. Uh, the fort was home to as many as 10 uh, cavalry and infantry companies. Along with civilians, it brought the population of the fort at times between 500 and 700 people. Now somewhere along the line, um, Fort Custer gained a nickname, uh, the Million Dollar Fort. And that phrase, the Million Dollar Fort, is mentioned in a letter that is written by one of the civilian workers who was a woodcutter 
Um, but the actual cost of the fort was far less than a million dollars. In 1877, the government allocated $200,000 for the construction of Fort Custer, which if you think about it, that was a lot of money uh, 140 years ago. Um, 90 plus structures would eventually be built at Fort Custer. Uh, and in some conversations that I've had with um, Daryl, or with Richard Upton and Daryl Linticum, Richard Upton wrote the book that um, Ed Kimmick mentioned, um, I've talked with these gentlemen and I've asked them the question, um, where do you think the idea of a million dollar fort came from? And uh, nobody really has a good answer there, mostly they just think it was hyperbole. Now here's one of the uh, picture of the commanding officers' homes. Um, and, and very few of the buildings from the original fort still exist. Uh, before the demolition of the fort, uh, one of these officers' homes uh, was moved off-site in its entirety, and it was moved south of Hardin about 30 miles. Uh, from there, uh, it was lived in uh, by ranchers and then by Crow people who believed it was haunted and they didn't want to have it anymore. They sold the structure, it was picked up, moved again into the city of Fort Smith. It is still there today and was used as a bed and breakfast up until just a couple of years ago um, when the, Zach, the Zakes retired. I've spent a night there in that, in, that, in that structure as part of the bed and breakfast and was not visited by anybody. <laughs> now, according to Daryl Linthicum, who uh, is one of the people, my go-to people when we talk about Fort Custer, and his parents owned the Fort Custer Motel in Hardin, uh, he tells me that the main office building there for the motel is actually one of the non-commissioned officers' quarters from the fort. Uh, the first train depot in Hardin was a building moved from the fort. There's a few other buildings that have been uh, also identified in the Hardin area. Uh, but for, by and large, uh, most of the fort uh, was actually uh, demolished, torn down. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, delegations of military men from various parts of the world, uh, Russia, France, Japan, visited the fort through the years and uh, agreed that Fort Custer was the finest cavalry post in the world. Now, that's possibly where the idea or the phrase million dollar fort came from because the fort was very impressive. They had quarters there for 10 companies, including stables for six troop of cavalry. Now, some of the notable personalities uh, associated with Fort Custer um, in addition to Lieutenant uh, Doan, Thomas LaForge, some of the others were Yellowstone Kelly, some of you will recognize him, a scout and explorer. Uh, the man pictured here is liver-eating Johnson. Uh, he was a mountain man, also known as Jeremiah Johnson, also known as the Crow Killer. Uh, General Philip Sheridan, General William T. Sherman, Grant Mars, the steamboat master, uh, the 10th Cavalry uh, Buffalo Soldiers, Frederick Remington, General Nelson Miles, General E.S. Godfrey, who was a Reno Hill veteran, as well as numerous other Civil War leaders who served as officers in command of the fort. Uh, additional notable personalities associated with Fort Custer are some of the Indian leaders that we're familiar with, such as Plenty Coup, who's pictured here. Uh, he was considered the last Crow chief. Uh, Two Leggins, uh, who was a sub-chief or a uh, pipe holder in their culture, uh, Sitting Bull, Gaul, 
um, holds the tail. Uh, he had another name. He was called Swordbearer. He uh, was a Crow warrior who led a revolt against the government uh, that was put down by the troops there at Fort Custer. Now, from left to right here, some pictures uh, of some of the structures uh, at the fort from left to right here. So, first of all, we have the guardhouse, which was a brick structure, and then a storehouse here. This was the opera house, <laughs> for real, and the officers' club right there. Now, the opera house was home to the Fort Custer Comic Opera and Burlesque Company, which, in addition to providing entertainment for the fort, traveled to outlying towns as well, such as Billings, Livingston, Bozeman, and Fort Ellis. This is a picture of the interior of one of the barracks, the soldier's picture here, in this picture here. This is members of the 25th Infantry who were Buffalo Soldiers. Um, people ask why do they call them Buffalo Soldiers, and there's no definitive answer, but it's thought that it came from the Indians themselves as a uh, term of respect, uh, they viewed these, uh, these uh, colored or black officers or um, military people um, as uh, resembling the buffalo because of the color of their skin and the nappiness of their hair that resembled uh, the nappiness of the, of the buffalo fur. Now, uh, there's a man by the name of James Purvis, Private James Purvis, who was stationed there at uh, Fort Custer, and uh, he wrote an, uh, 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 an article or a column. He wrote a column for the Billings Daily Gazette, and it was called Fort Custer News. And in that column, he would report about events taking place at Fort Custer. Um, and uh, he served there for a number of years, transferred to another post, served there for a number of years, and eventually left the Army as a private. He went in as a private, he came out as a private. Probably because he had a habit of sharing his opinion, right? But one of the things that he writes, I, I, lots of things he wrote, I read, and are very funny, but one of the things he wrote was this. He said, in, German, in, he said, in the German army, a soldier is obligated to write home to his wife once a month. This explains why so many Germans come to this country to escape military duty. <laughs> Another picture of the enlisted men's barracks. Um, the building of Fort Custer required quite a few people. It was done in a very short amount of time. Uh, the Army brought with them over 200 what they call Army mechanics. That's another name for carpenters and skilled laborers. Uh, they built Fort Custer. Uh, clay bricks were made on site. They were fired in kilns, built there on the ground. Line was burned at Fort Smith, 35 miles away, and transported. Plasterers were hired to plaster the officers' quarters, soldiers' quarters, the hospital, the headquarters buildings, and a few others. Timber was cut there on the river, and a sawmill was set up at the fort to cut it into boards. You can see that was pretty comfortable quarters. Richard Upton, in his book, uh, Fort Custer on the Bighorn, he wrote the following. He says, Fort Custer accompanied or accomplished what it was established for, to neutralize the hostile Indians of the area, which in turn stimulated many kinds of activity in the Yellowstone and Bighorn Valleys. Towns were established, farms were settled, steamboats were challenged to establish new records of speed and distance. 
And I think one of the reasons why he felt required or the need to write something like that was because Fort Custer was, you know, built in response to the Indian Wars. You know, I mean, the Battle of Little Bighorn shocked the nation. But what most people had no way of knowing was that 1876 and 1877 was pretty much the end of the Indian Wars. The Nez Perce War has been mentioned already. That happened the same summer that this was this fort was being built. And the Nez Perce War really was the last major conflict between the U.S. Army and the Native Americans. Um, in this picture here, uh, we have the military band, and they are marching in formation on the parade grounds. Now, the Fort, Fort Custer Military Band was always popular. Uh, not only did they play for military events, they frequently furnished music for important occasions in Billings, which was about 50 miles away, <coughs> as well as entertainment for the fort. Again, Private James Purvis, writing in his column, said, the band plays at guard mount at 9 a.m. and in the afternoon discourses sweet music. Now, when people think of military forts of the 19th century, um, they often think of stockade-style structures, rows of upright logs <laughs> forming a wall, towers in the corners for observing, and cannons and the like. But Fort Custer was not built like that at all. There was no wall, and there were no towers. Uh, by 1877, the U.S. Army had decided that it didn't look good for the military to hide behind walls. So their forts were wide open. The tower in this particular picture here is a water tower. Fort Custer had a pressurized water system that delivered water to spigots outside of the living quarters, the hospital, the stables, and other structures. They pumped the water out of the Little Horn and then sent it into the fort. Now, even as Captain Gilbreth and H Company were establishing Terry's Landing in 1877, the Northern Pacific Railway was fixing a line in the newly expanded country. Gilbreth went on to say, the whole country round about the Bighorn and the Yellowstone Rivers are overrun by prospectors looking for gold. Now, one of those railways was built, and the Fort Custer stage carried passengers from uh, Northern Pacific Railway, stopped 35 miles north of the fort, to a Union Pacific Railway stop that was 430 miles south in Wyoming. And that route, 430 miles if you were brave enough to ride it, took three days and three nights. Pretty much non-stop traffic, uh, non-stop except for stops to change horses and grease the wheels. Don Foote, uh, a famous Western collector and one-time owner of Pompey's Pillar, became the owner of one of those original stage coaches, the 1879 Mudwagon. Mudwagon was smaller, lighter than a stagecoach, requiring fewer horses to pull it. And when he passed away in 1868, that mudcoach eventually made its way to the Lincoln County Museum, where it remains today on display as part of our Fort Custer exhibit. These are Fort Custer pack teams. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move ahead real quick, but um, the Ford kept over 200 mules for this purpose. Each of those mules could pack about 350 pounds apiece. They would use them for maneuvers and so on and so forth. Otherwise, the rest of the freight was moved by civilian freighters. This is an ice detail, harvesting ice from the Warren River for their ice house. Ford Custer Commissary. Uh, in 1886, Private James Purvis again complained in this column. The price of a bottle of beer was 40 cents. 
a cup of coffee and a sandwich was 25 cents. Now, both of those were, of course, very expensive to an enlisted man who drew $13 a month in pay. Payday came about every three months. Now, this is a beer bottle taken from the Fort Custer site. Um, and I don't know if, if James Purvis drank from this one or not, but he may have, okay? Um, a beer back in the days when he was complaining about 40 cents beer was a regular beer back in those days in most places was about a dime. So he had reason to complain. Uh, shortly after the column, the beer price of beer was dropped to 30 cents. At the northern end of the, of the parade grounds was the hospital. I'll show you another picture of this here. Now, James Purvis wrote in his column, Our post-hospital is a model institution, a credit to the medical department of the U.S. Army, and a godsend to many of its soldiers who have found there the oasis in the desert of their affliction and disease. He was pretty wordy for a private home. Now, here are some of the Crow Scouts who served with Custer. They were stationed there at Fort Custer in its earliest years. Uh, this picture was taken at Fort Custer in 1877, the first year of its existence. Um, they're numbered there by whoever gave us this picture, but uh, number one, this guy down here, uh, that's half yellow face. Number two is unknown right there. Uh, number three back is curly. Uh, number four, white swan. Number five, bull snake. And number six was hairy moccasin. Now, from 1877 to 1890, as many as 300 Crow Scouts were regularly attached to Fort Custer. And later on, they would actually create an Indian uh, company, Company L, and uh, they served uh, there at Fort Custer, all right? Uh, and I am moving fast. Here's our uh, Horace Bivens, all right? Uh, the Buffalo Soldiers arrived there at Fort Custer. Uh, the, the infantry, or the, I'm sorry, the uh, cavalry portion of them did. Uh, the 10th, they arrived there uh, in 1892, and they were there to replace the first. The, a train brought them to Custer Station uh, in the middle of a May snowstorm, where they then had to march 35 miles in a foot of snow to get to Fort Custer after having come from Arizona. You can only imagine how that felt. Now, Sergeant, at this time he was Sergeant Horace Bivens, he eventually would rise to the rank of Captain because he served in the military two different times. He was the regiment's leading marksman. He had the distinction of having led the entire U.S. Army in marksmanship. Uh, five times, actually, through the course of his career, he was awarded a gold medal for his marksmanship. Um, and then he uh, was decorated in his 32 years of military, he was decorated 32 times. When he did retire for the second stint in the Army, he did move back here to Billings. All right, so here's an aerial of Fort Custer. Uh, this was taken in the 1980s. Uh, as you can see, you know, even uh, roughly 100 years later, uh, there was still evidence of the fort up on the plateau. Now, if you were to look at Google Maps today, you wouldn't see any of this. That area has been so thoroughly farmed and uh, that now there's no sign of it at all. Um, and in 1903, the U.S. Army um, came up with $10,000 to dismantle the fort. It took 250 Crow men three years to dismantle the fort. Most of that material went to Crow Agency to build buildings there. And so all I have left here now is just to show you a few slides of our exhibit at the museum. 
uh, of Fort Custer. It's the largest exhibit we have at the museum. And um, most of this stuff uh, has been donated, of course, to us, a lot of it by uh, Daryl Linthicum. And he has since then sold his entire collection to the museum. And uh, we are very proud to have this. And so here's just a couple of pictures of the exhibit. And this here, um, a research and design team from the Montana State University's College of Arts and Architecture built this two-scale model uh, for our museum. And this is a little bit better picture of it so you can kind of see the extent of that fort and why it would have been so impressive 130, 140 years ago.